Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you be the best professional you can be, providing a mix of career and leadership coaching, courses, content, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io and join today. Today, my guest is Christian Mashbier. Christian is a Danish entrepreneur, researcher, philosopher, and co-founder of the consulting firm Red Associates which works with its clients to apply the human sciences to business decisions. Christian is also the author of Look, How to Pay Attention in a Distracted World, which we'll cover today. More generally, he writes, speaks, and teaches on the practical application of the human sciences. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, Financial Times, Washington Post, and Bloomberg Businessweek. He lives in New York City with his family. Christian, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So let's start by talking about your book, Look. Tell our audience about the premise of it. For 25 years, I've been an observer. I've been in my whole life, but as a practitioner and as a sort of a professional. And during those years, I found my own way of how to do good observation. Like, how do you observe human behavior and human activity and human life in an organized way? And because of that, and because the company I ran did this in a way that worked, I was asked by a university in Manhattan called the New School to Mm -hmm. teach, can it be taught? Can good observation or innovation as a tool for innovating, can that be taught? And I did that class with a friend of mine for 10 years. And after a while where a lot of students liked it and ended up enjoying it, I was asked, should you make that into a book? So the book is basically the class, and the class is basically my career in a way, or the foundation yeah. for my career. Um, so that's how it ended up becoming 250 pages. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not a thousand page tome, so at least mm-hmm. uh, more distilled down than that. In the first part of the book, and this is a part that was really new for me, I'm an engineer, there are some psychology underpinnings in what you cover that really go back to the 19th century, Gestalt, existentialism. How do they underpin the approach that you've taken in your work and your firm and your class? Well, philosophy was my first love, and I ended up teaching philosophy when I was a professor. And for me, that's the foundation for how I think. And what connects, you could say, phenomenology, which is a philosophical tradition, continental philosophical tradition out of the 1920s up till today, and Gestalt psychology, which is a type of psychology that had a lot of traction in the beginning of the 20th century in particular, is that the way humans experience the world is as wholes, 
So you could say the opposite would be a scientific approach, which would be you take individual data points and then add them up to a conclusion where human experience doesn't work like that. We humans doesn't experience individual atomistic data points. We experience all of it at once. So when you go into a room and there are there's a chair, imagine that, you don't go through the process of saying it's chair, it's brown, it's made of wood. You just see chair and you probably see chair as connected to other chairs. And you also see that the chairs have tables because you know when there are chairs, there are often tables. And it has, let's say, forks and knives and roast chicken and other other tools around it. So you don't see data points in terms of a chair and another chair and chicken. You just see dinner. So the way humans experience anything really is as holistic. Yeah. Uh, and what Germans would call gestalts. And that's quite different from, let's say, a camera or a microphone or a, an AI even. Um, that's the way we experience the world. I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying it's different from what a machine would do. And it, it has big philosophical consequences that humans experience the world and perceive the world in wholes rather than in discrete, meaningless parts. Do you think we walk into those situations and see the whole before the parts or see the whole and the parts simultaneously? We see the parts on the background of the whole. You normally say the whole is more than the sum of its parts. That's the right. that's sort of the natural way right. of talking about it. But I would say it's even more than that. It is that the whole defines what even counts as a part. So there would be if you go into a room and you and there's dinner, you wouldn't maybe focus on many other things in the room that would be there. It would have color and shape and there, you would have a distance to it and so on. But the dust on the floor doesn't really matter. The books on the shelves doesn't matter to the setting of dinner. So the whole defines what counts as a part. And mm -hmm. that sort of gestalt psychology, they call it figure ground, that a figure, you could say a dot on a piece of paper, is nothing without the ground that is the paper itself. A car in the street is only a car on the background of traffic. And a roast chicken is only a roast chicken on the background of all the other components that are necessary for dinner. It'd be very odd if there's just a roast chicken lying around. Uh, on a, on a blank would, piece of paper. Exactly. Yeah. So the idea is that the experience of the world is that all figures, so that could be all everything around you, a chair or a roast chicken or a car in the street, is always in the relationship to the background. And we humans see the structure of backgrounds. We see traffic, not car. We can focus on cars and we can see which color it has and if it's different from the others. But first and foremost, we see it, the cars in the background of traffic and moving people around and so on. You use this part of the book to clear up some misconceptions or misunderstandings about observation. Can you describe a few of those that I guess, the trip us up when we're seeking yeah. to observe? Yeah. So there are many, but one philosophical thing is that called empiricism in the history of mm -hmm. empiricism, which is that the way we supposedly, at least that's what the, that tradition claims, is that the world is made up of individual atomistic data points. And then it says that somehow that makes up the meaningful world that we inhabit. 
And that's the way we should describe what human experience is. And that is just if you pay attention to how people observe the world. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, the same is that the way we see our eyes and how light hits our retina and is then turned into seeing the world around us, there's a misunderstanding that that works like a camera. So a camera would, of course, record what is in front of us, but that's not how the world is experienced. So an example in the book is if you stand on a train station and you see a dot far, far away, it's a dot. You have a sense that it's probably a train, but you see a dot. And then suddenly that dot becomes a train and it switches from something abstract to something you really know what is. And it's not, if it was a camera, it would be able to record how that dot slowly in even increments because of its speed, becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. But if you'd ever tried to stand on a train station and see, it's basically small and large in a snap of experience. So where a camera would experience the world in what is technically what is going on, which is that the dot becomes bigger and ends up getting more and more detail and becoming a train, that's a bad description of how we experience it. You could say we could hope it was more like a camera, or you Mm. could say but it just isn't. It's just a bad description. With sound as well, if you hear on a piano, if you hit an A, a middle A on a piano, it's 440 hertz that hits your eardrum. And you can record that with a microphone and you can figure out what the exact scientific description of that note. But if you hear that A in a chord, in a series of notes that are in the world of jazz, it sounds like jazz. It's 440 hertz, but it's sa- right. it's in the world of jazz, right. where if it's in the world of opera and the tenor sings an A in 440 hertz, then it sounds more operatic. So the same, you could say, scientifically measured sounds or distances or colors or shapes are always experienced as part of its context. So the idea that you can have context-free experiences. It's just not the case for humans. Yeah. And yeah. that's quite important, just a better description of how humans experience the world than if you see it as a scientific recording. Humans also, and you bring this up in the book, almost always come into some observational exercise with some sort of preconceived ideas about what they're going to see. And I know that you really I say coach, I guess, on importance of suspending judgment, suspending your ingoing biases about what you're going to see. Otherwise, you kind of get in your own way. Be curious just to hear a little bit more about how you really do that. Well, the biggest enemy of observation, actually seeing what's there in the world, is opinion. Mm. So having opinions about things. And I realized with my students that they were very well-trained and increasingly like trained more harshly in generating opinions or taking over other people's opinions and being able to reproduce them. So if you see the world through the lens of a very strong opinion about something, then you don't see the world. Then you've already concluded what you're going to see Mm -hmm. rather than seeing what's actually there and being surprised by the world. So it is a necessary element of observation 
that you try to figure out what your own opinions are and then let them go for a little while. You can always have them back later, but if you want to observe what's going on, you should have a moment or a period of time where you try to fight it as best as you can. And you can never, we always will have opinions and cultural biases and, and so on, but we can try to park them for a second or at least partially park them for a second in order to see what's really there. Otherwise, you're just seeing what you already think you know. And that's helpful for humans because it minimizes the amount of information you have to process in order to see something. But there are moments where you have to see things new and you have Mm. to see what's really there. And then it's helpful to learn how to suspend judgment for a moment. And I think it's increasingly important because people get increasingly strong opinions about everything and that's the enemy of observation and therefore also the enemy of innovation. Yeah. Well, as you're saying this, I'm certainly, I'm thinking about the news, right? I mean, I try really hard to find something resembling a neutral, objective view of what's going on in the world. It's really hard because you, short of being on the ground in a particular situation, you're going to get a filtered version of events, right? You think about like examples where they'll say throngs of people protested XYZ and XYZ country. And then you get into the article and it says hundreds of people were protesting. You think, okay, like this is in a city of 10 million people, hundreds of people is like a non-event. And yet, you know, the headline sends you into that article with such bias. And it's, as you say, I think we're living in a world that's getting polarized and it makes it a lot harder to go into any situation and suspend judgment. And therefore more necessary. But I mean, 100 people in a demonstration is like the lunch queue to Shake Shack, right? So that, that's, <laughs> yeah. that, might not, that might be dramatized. But yeah. I'm not arguing for a neutral cold stance because we can do that. And that's what sciences are. But I'm arguing for a kind of observation where you are immersed in the world. And it's the same with if you were reading a great book or a great poem, or listening to a great song, it's impossible to experience that without engaging your own humor and emotional state and so on. It's impossible to understand what's going on in a song without engaging your own world. But you can engage it in a way where you're not trying to have opinions about it immediately. Yeah, Uh, It helps a lot to see, truly experience something. So I don't think we should park our empathy and our humanity, we should just try to not have such ready-made opinions. You argue in the latter part of the book that the observer is actually part of the observation. You can't separate yourself and you are part of the experience that you're observing. You can't completely take yourself out and observe from a point of complete neutrality. Exactly. The philosophical tradition of phenomenology, it's called the hermeneutic circle that the watcher is part of the watched. And you just have to deal with that. That if you are, I'm Danish, if I go and try to understand something in South Korea, and I say media use in South Korea, I'm still from where I am. And I still have my experience of growing up and a set of values that I might not have thought about that would be in the way of truly understanding what was going on. In order to understand it, you might have to be from the place that you're looking to truly understand, like all the way down. Yeah. Uh, but I still think we can try to understand each other the best 
And I think there is a way to access what's going on with people that are different than ourselves, than we are ourselves. And certainly we should try, like not trying that would be a pretty dystopian thing to say, oh, we have biases, therefore we'll never be able to understand each other. I don't think that's a very good idea. So certainly we are and a part of whatever we are observing, which is different yeah. from observing bacteria or molecules or planets. Bacteria doesn't change just because we're looking. Whereas if you're looking at a family and their media use in South Korea, they might behave differently than if you weren't there. So you have to adjust right. for that. You teach a class on this topic, as you've mentioned. When you send your students out into the world, right, New York City in your case, to go do some form of observation, other than getting them to let go of their biases, what are the other things that you find that you have to work hardest at getting them to do right? Waiting. Yeah. Like waiting with the conclusion for a little longer and not imposing your judgment on something and just be open and just look and listen for a change. And for instance, I had a student, really actually elegant study. She looked at the A train that goes from Brooklyn all the way to Harlem and goes mm -hmm. through the town. And she spent several days just being on the A train and being in the different stops on the A train. And what she learned was she came in with the idea that the way to understand a train like that was about the places that it touched. So the different stops on the train, she would have the opinion that if the area had a large population that came from, let's say, Colombia, it would have a particular vibe. And if it was in the middle of Manhattan, it would have a different vibe. That's how to understand the A train. And she said, after having been there for a while, she understood that it's actually not place that defines the train. It is time. It is when people get it on and off. So she said that at four o'clock in the morning, it would be construction workers. And the entire train was different from the slot between 8.30 and 9, where all people in the financial sector, for instance, would show up. So right. the types of people... And the entire nature of that train shouldn't be defined so much from space, but more from time. And you only get that by being there and being open that you might be wrong, that your immediate analysis of right or wrong about that situation might be wrong and be open to like being inspired and experience the magic of sort of everyday life as it happens. Latter part of the book, you described kind of a revelatory experience that you had at work when somebody brought in a book, The Peregrine, and suggested that everybody read it, and you found it to be particularly enlightening. Can you talk a little bit about why that was the case? Yeah. It's my favorite book in the world. I mean, you should read this book before you read mine. If you were ever considering reading my book. Too late uh, for that. So I'll know, have to I do know. them in reverse order. Yeah, please do. It's written in the 50s by a writer called J.A. Baker. And he wrote, that's his primary work. And we don't know much about him. Probably worked at a juice factory somewhere in Essex in England. And he describes a pair of peregrine falcons that comes from the north, probably in Norway, to Essex area. And he describes six months of these birds. And when I give, you know, the class that I've been teaching at the new school was called Human Observations, so Observations of Humans. And the first book I gave them was a book about peregrine falcons is confusing first for a student. Mm -hmm. and, but after they've read it, and particularly after the class was over, 
people said that that was the core of the class. Like that book shows what good observation is and how yeah. he engages and describes what he sees. So he's not romantic about it. Did those birds kill other birds in the most brutal way possible? So instead of, even though he loved them, he also was describing what actually happened, um, which was not necessarily aesthetically well he wanted it to be, but it how it is. It's what it is. Mm. And he also engages himself in kind of an obsessive way in truly trying to understand what's going on. And if you read it, you will understand his relationship to nature, human relationship to nature, particularly the peregrine falcon, and its surrounded sort of ecology. It is just gorgeous. And the best observation I've ever read. I haven't read the book, as I mentioned, but I think about people that I know who are into their bird watching, right? Or into nature watching of any form. I mean, the ones who are really diligent about it, they notice things that you and I wouldn't notice, right? What happens in September versus what happens in October and how it might be changing due to changes in climate and how the different species interact with each other and how weather affects it. And all of those things that just you only really get. I presume that that Baker was spending a lot of time out in the marshlands watching these birds were in their migratory cycle in England. And you only get that by spending a lot of time doing it. Yes, exactly. It takes time to observe something well. If you make cars and you're not taking a lot of time to understand how people interact with, use cars, feel about cars, right. you will not make very good ones. If you need to make new types of media and you don't understand how people interact with media and how that is changing, you will probably not be that successful. So yeah. observation of whatever phenomenon you're dealing with in life makes it possible to describe the phenomenon you're dealing with with much greater clarity. And therefore, it's possible to intervene and make things based on it. So I think most great innovation comes from observation. And you can practice it. You can get better at it. You can teach it. Um, it's sort of a human skill, just like many other human skills. Yeah. And I think undervalued and just yeah, glorious that we can do those things. You know, I think especially right now, I mean, the world is full of distractions, right? Attention spans are probably shorter than they ever have been. And getting somebody to go out and spend hours watching people get on and off the A train in New York sitting in stations, observing what happens there during different times of the day. I mean, most people just don't have the patience for it or they don't make the time for it. Right, exactly. But it's like going to the gym. It's not always fun to go to the gym, but mm -hmm. if you don't do it, your body will deteriorate and you won't feel the way you want to feel. And the same with your attention. You have to have a practice of strengthening and sharpening your attention. I'd say yeah. I'm quite hopeful about people's attention span, though. I mean, I've been part of a few podcasts in the past month because of launching a book. People listen to two-hour podcasts. It's just incredible. <laughs> a little bit defies conventional wisdom, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. We want our videos in TikTok length, but we'll listen to podcasts, as you say, that go on for, for quite some time. It's a little bit of a paradox. A TV show for seven seasons with 15 episodes per season that's attention span. That's serious yeah. attention span, if you think about it. Yeah. And the super fans will do it with hyper focus, and then they'll get online and they'll write about it. 
Reddit and all the other places where people tend to compare notes about TV shows. And the potential is there. It just doesn't get seem like it gets used a lot. We rush to judgment. We act without patience. So, exactly. But this is what your firm is all about, right? The consulting firm that you founded, co-founded 15 years ago or so, the idea of applying the human sciences to help clients, in your case, corporate clients with business decisions. How does that play out in, in terms of representative project? A, a client, they could be a government agency or a hospital or a big corporation, would have a social phenomenon that they wanted to understand in order to create something with it. So if it is a hospital, understanding the relationship between nurses and wards and doctors and patients, understanding the world of the patient means that you can create better services and better engagement between people. But in order to do that, you have to understand it. So, and of course, they have a great understanding of it. But often people are so permeated by the practices that they have that it's like water to the fish, that it's hard to see your own culture and your own practices and your own behaviors. So that's why you can use anthropologists or social psychologists to study how something plays out and can see things in a different way. So for us, we would work primarily with very large clients around the world. So with sports companies, we would study how yoga grew and mm. became what it is today. With automakers, we would look at electrification and how yeah. electrification changes with time with a big South Korean maker of TVs and mobile phones, we would follow how media changed from sitting in your couch with a remote control to what we have today, which is YouTubers and Reddit and ultra specialized global groups of people with the same interests. Yeah. Uh, so, so basically following how social phenomena move over time. And in that way, by understanding that you can predict the future, really, you can predict yeah. what might happen in the future, which is helpful. What you're doing is making things for the future. You described the automotive work you did in the book as well as here. And the, that example that's in the book of the Ford F-150, the most profitable vehicle in America, Ford themselves doubted that client base would be open at all to an electric vehicle. And you went out and did observations and you ended up finding a much more nuanced perspective on things than what they had suspected. It's amazing to me that here's the most profitable car in America. And you would think that the automaker, in this case, Ford, would have a deep understanding of its client base, but it took the level of observation that you and your colleagues put into it to be able to surface things that even they were missing. Talk a little bit about some of the things that you saw as you were doing that work. Yeah. I would say that Ford and particularly the team that deals with the F-150 are very connected to its customers. And they are themselves leading a lifestyle that's quite close to what yeah. many of the customers of the F-150 are. But introducing a new technology like electrification, so huge batteries and a new right. drivetrain is, of course, a bet. And the question is, in their case, electrical vehicles in, let's say, 2012 or 2015 was very much a climate change kind of idea that the reason right. why you would buy a Tesla, because you were concerned about CO2 emissions. And when you looked at the owners of the F-150 trucks, that wasn't their main concern in the world. So we had to figure out 
would it be possible to introduce this new technology to a group for whom the natural story about this new technology was not irrelevant, but not the most relevant? So we needed to understand their relationship to the truck, the phenomenon of the truck. We need to understand how the group of customers, the core customers of the F-150 relates to nature. And it turned out that there's a big difference in between how people on the coast experience nature on average to people in the core part of America experience nature. They just use different words for it and they love it. Everybody loves it. But for someone in New York City, electric vehicles are about a graph of CO2 emissions. And mm. for someone, let's say in West Texas, nature is the outdoors and a much more concrete, direct relationship to nature. And it turns out that actually they would love electric vehicles just for different reasons. And it, it gave sort of a comfort to making a bet that really could break the company. Like if you, if you made electric vehicles and they flopped in the lights are out Detroit, which would be horrible. So understanding the groups of people and especially the phenomenon of the truck, it's a cultural, it's one of the most important objects in North America. Maybe the electric guitar is another one, but, but I mean, it's a very, very important thing. And understanding it deeply was important to big technology bets on that. You describe that as a bet, certainly the South Korean manufacturer of televisions and mobile phones having you look at how people were consuming television and you surface some of the, say, the early days of streaming and binge watching and the research that you did, they are huge bets. And you acknowledge in the book that not all of these, I'll say, fringe movements, right? And that, like the example of the people who are streaming shows that took place in Monument Valley in the American West, that that might not be indicative of a broader movement over time. How do you counsel your clients on how to think about the uncertainty that comes with some of these bets that they may be contemplating? If you make a really big bet on the future of the TV, there are many types of explorations that are going on. Yeah. And one of them is cultural. Another one is financial. A third one is technological availability. A fourth is factory capacity and capabilities and so on. So it's the cultural input, you could say, or the human input. But the risk of not doing it is also rather high. So if you don't see what's going to happen, if you have no analysis of how a culture will change its behaviors, you end up making things that are irrelevant for the future. Yeah. So yeah. the risk of not doing it is rather high as well. And the best you can do is apply enough resources to understand a phenomenon in order to make the best possible bet you can make. And what I've yeah. found over the years is that the future is here, as William Gibson said, the future is here, but unevenly distributed. Yeah. And it's, what's important is to find the pockets that are indicative of what will happen in the future. And it's often behavior that is surprising and insightful to learn about, but that could be the norm in the future. So you yeah. see marginal practices on the periphery but if it looks like something that a normal Tuesday in a normal family somewhere would do, then you can make bigger bets on it. Design thinking is something you hear a lot about today. I was curious as I was reading the book to think about how would you describe your approach to generating insights that lead to innovation relative to the way that 
design thinking is typically applied? Well, design thinking is driven by designers that are inspired by ethnographic practices or engineers. And it's quite often done in a way that's quite fast. So it's based on the designer's intuition. And then you go out and you do a little bit of research. But the real goal is quite quickly to get to new ideas. And that's fine. But it's different for having trained social scientists do the heavy work and slow work of observation. It takes a little longer. It's different in its approach. And designers, I've found, are better at design than they are at social sciences. Design thinking is appropriate, I think, when you need to adjust features or come up with, you say, marginal improvements of something. Mm -hmm. It's quite appropriate. Um, if it's cultural shift that is relevant at a kind of a corporate strategy level, it's not always appropriate. So I've been in too many design thinking processes in my life to really want to be in another one. It's become kind of industrialized and often the results are quite boring. The ideas mm -hmm. are very banal in a way, and that's fine. It has its purpose, but it's just not what I like to do. As you say, I mean, it may work better when you're looking at features or something marginal. It also, I mean, just the way you were describing it, it brought to mind, there's often a, a rapid iteration at part of the process, right? And you can't rapidly iterate going from a gas-powered to electric-powered Ford F-150 truck, right? Or fundamentally changing the way that people consume television. You can test things, certainly like a software product. You can design, test, design, test, design, test, and continue that iteration to the point where you might ultimately get to something that's groundbreaking, but it allows that iterative process of generating insights, which is to a different input, different design in that case, which you can't really do in some of these bigger things that more often I would imagine that you and your colleagues work on. It's just different things. Yeah. It's, we, need, we need all kinds of tools and the ones I like and enjoy, well, that I think I'm good at is different than yeah. fast iterations and design sprints and you know things like that. I'm just not very relevant for that. Yeah. Someone yeah. else with a different skill set is. And design thinking, unfortunately, has been applied sort of whole cloth to anything that has to do with innovation yeah. in the past 20 years. And it's we have seen peak design thinking now, maybe five years ago was the peak of design thinking. And it's less right. influential today than it was. Yeah. Do you see anything taking its place? What's happening is the logic of software, right? So the logic of software is you can release new features every Friday and right. you can basically learn, have input from that. That's certainly a big deal and it is very appropriate for software. There's a lot of hope that language models can synthesize enormous data sets and create insight. And I'm open to that idea. I just haven't seen it yet, even though I have access to some of the best that exists. I think I'm not sure that instead that language models understand anything. And I think it reproduces ideas that are already existing and sort of exciting and interesting. But then it turns out when you really look at it, it's not this. It's not cultural insight in the same way. Yeah. Changing topics. You you mentioned you grew up in Denmark. You described parts of your childhood. How did your childhood shape what you've pursued professionally? So I grew up on the hard left 
So my family was quite left-wing. And in the way that people were left-wing in the 70s and 80s, which is different from today, it was like, mm. it was much more radicalized. And I learned after a while that that wasn't for me. That story about the future and that story about the world and how it works wasn't intuitive to me. And I tried to, when I was maybe 15 or 17 or something like that, to learn why. And it really is, I don't like opinions. I don't like when people are so certain about how the world works and how something works that they apply quite simplistic structures, or quite simplistic stories to it. I sort of learned that I, not against judgment, but I don't have a deep affinity for it. And it made me an observer in a way. It made yeah. me sort of wait a little bit with concluding, and it made me kind of a more of a listener than a talker, which, and I'm scared of people with strong opinions in general. How did that influence some of the things that you did in the early part of your career? It's just an intuition that let's wait and have a look first. And I started a company when I was maybe 21 or 22, which was based on this kind of idea. And that was before I've even fully understood what anthropology is, which of course is the practice of observation. But it was just an intuition of mine that maybe we should look at patients before we have a lot of ideas about how to treat them in a new way. Maybe it's important to understand people that run when we make running shoes. It was just so intuitive to me. And I often found that particular perspective was not the only one, maybe not even the most important one, but it's a perspective that's helpful. Yeah. If you want to make public policy or corporate strategy or mm. anything like that. And I found quickly that people thought it was helpful. So that influenced me. And it comes from this sort of aversion against strong opinions, I think. Your current firm, how did you and your co-founders meet and what did you each bring that was complementary to the forming of the company? Right. So I'm not ad red anymore. I turned okay. sort of academic okay. a few years back. But it was founded on the idea that you could observe people, and that was helpful for corporate strategy. And my co-founders had the same intuition. One was a sociologist, and two others were sort of reformed economists that found that modeling the world in big economic models was rarely very precise. So people that have modeled, let's say, interest rates have had a hard time explaining what happened the last two years and have a hard time predicting anything about what it would be in three months. So they were sort of skeptical towards the idea that you can model the world and that there's sort of quantitative model that can be built in order to predict the future. And I think that intuition was very overlapping with mine. Even though I came from philosophy, I came from the world of phenomenology. So we mm. sort of met in how on earth are we going to predict anything if the models can't, right? So yeah. You know, if you take the COVID experience we've just been through, the predictions that came out of the quantitative models were quite off and very big decisions were made based on flawed code in a way. And that's not very different from economists trying to, that, you know, I don't know, how long have they told us that we are on the precipice of a recession? 10 years or something like that? Yeah. So they just don't know. And I think experts of language models that I've talked to also say that, that that's no different now. We just can't predict the future. So we yeah. thought one input is social analysis, social science. Mm. And it's not the only one, but it, it is one. And we've found it helpful over the yeah. years. What did you look for in terms of the people that you would bring into the firm? You must have had a fairly unique profile that you were seeking. Yeah, exactly. 
thankfully, a lot of people wanted to work there. So, yeah. you know, we I think we hired one for every 500 that wanted a wow. job because it was such a specialized thing. But we looked for people that didn't follow a straight career trajectory. And yeah. we also often hired people that were on scholarships rather than paying themselves. Quite often, people came from all walks of life. Mm. And then we wanted a global group. So we hired people from Kenya and Brazil and South Korea and Indonesia instead mm. of just hiring local. And of course, in the beginning where we were, we started in Denmark and then opened offices, different places. Of course, in the beginning, you have to rely on whoever lives around. But we ended right. up being able to find people from all over the world. Yeah, And we did that just because it's fun. <laughs> like It's just fun yeah. to have people that come from all kinds of backgrounds. And it just strengthens the conversation and it strengthens the analysis that people disagree and just have different approaches. Yeah. Uh, How else did it sort of manifest itself in the culture itself? How is your culture really different from a typical corporate culture? Chaotic, very human. Like people were interested in humans. And the, so the conversation was often about things people have seen in the everyday activities of people but they were just highly fascinating. And then quite academic in a sense, like intellectually stimulating and thoughtful people. I would imagine that there was a tension between the timeline that your clients were looking for you to operate against relative to your desire to have that hyper-reflection that you talk about, to have the appropriate proper amount of time you right. know, to do your observation. How did you manage that? By doing things over a very, very long time. So if you take the mobile phone, during from maybe 2005, which was flip phones and little right. screens, discussing whether we should put a camera on a phone, you know, things like that. Until today, that is what, 15, 18 years of, I think, together 50 projects. So following the same phenomenon through a series of projects, Hmm. It means that, that it's actually, let's say, five people, 10 people on a one phenomenon for 15 years in a very well-funded setting. Um, yeah. That's not a short project. That's a very, very long project. Uh, yeah. And we did that with the rise of diabetes and hmm. digitization of finance, things like that, where the social phenomenon might have been eight-month increment projects or six-month increment projects. But over the years would be these monster projects of many, many people all around the world for more than a decade. So we found this way of doing really deep longitudinal work within the framework of shorter, not short, but shorter projects in right. a sense. This is a career-focused podcast. We talked a little bit before we started recording about how you can apply observational techniques in an entrepreneurial context. But if I'm not an entrepreneur and I'm not doing, I'll say, product development work, how can I think about applying some of these concepts to help me better manage my career? The book I wrote before this one that you just read was called Sensemaking. Mm. And sensemaking is the activity of humans understanding other humans. And I think if you are working in a bank or if you reduce cost or if you optimize processes or if you teach children or if you deal with patients, understanding humans around you seems a reasonable activity. 
and I think career improving. So I think understanding the phenomenon of money, if you work in a bank, it can come through observation of how people relate to money. Um, yeah. So figuring out what's the core phenomenon of that I'm working with and studying that on a daily basis as kind of a personal research project, you could say. Uh, yeah. I've seen that, I've seen people getting promoted re really fast if they have that sort of attitude to it yeah. and being able to provide things that just no one else can. So I think whatever you do, if you're in a band or if you nurse, understanding your audience can be helpful. Uh, not that you should, as a band, only play things that the audience wants, but understanding is a good starting point. So yeah. understanding your fans seem helpful. So it's basically just a tool, just like being really good at spreadsheets or being yeah. really good at so many other things. It's kind of a, like a life tool that I yeah. think is, a, is relevant if you're raising children. That seems that understanding the school and the entire environment that your children are operating in can be, instead of enforcing opinions that you might not even hold, is a good way of spending time. It's also yeah. so interesting. Like, it's just so fun to do. Yeah, if you give yourself the time to do it. But we have time. I mean, people spend so much time on so many stupid oh, of things. So yeah. everybody's got time. The executives of some of the companies I work with, who's got, you know, 150,000 employees and, uh, right. you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue, if they have time, so do you. It's a good point. So what's ahead for you? I don't fully know yet. So I've been an academic for a while and teaching and writing and so on, but I'm not sure that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So I think I have another sort of big project in me still. I'm of course discussing that with people and thinking about it, but I want to be sure that I'm doing the right thing before I start doing yeah. it. Doing observation of your own career at the moment. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Any last advice you want to give, would want to give our audience in terms of thinking about observation and the power of it in terms of their day-to-day -day work or careers or anything else? I think it's a two-step process. First, figure out a phenomenon that you are interested in. So, or that just seems fascinating. And then two, describe it. Have opinions about it. Don't conclude, just describe. So mm. for instance, Yesterday, I played chess and I went to the people that play chess for money at Union Square in New York. Right. And instead of just play and often lose, but because they are just extremely good at it, try to figure out what's the phenomenon at stake here? What is it? What's the social activity going on? And I thought, like, let's try to understand winning. Like, what does it mean to win? And is winning just destroying your opponent or is there more to it? Right. And it hmm. turned out that a lot of winning, if you then observe it and just describe what's going on, it turns out it's quite a lot of parents coming with their children, not trying to win, but trying to teach. Mm -hmm. It's often friends who somebody might win, but that's not the point. The point yeah. is something else. And if you think of winning in chess that way, you could say, of course, Deep Blue won against Kasparov in the 90, late 90s, but did it win? Like, did it win in that way? Maybe not. I mean, it technically won, but did it even play chess? So you can sort of study a phenomenon that is just down the street from me. It's two blocks away from where I live and just see 
what is an everyday activity that I walk past most days and just see the magic of what's going on there and the complexity of what's going on. I think everybody yeah. should do that. It's kind of like a gym. It's an attention gym yeah. to do that for half an hour a day, just like you would go yeah. running or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And people come, as you say, for all different reasons. Some are there to win money for just a brief break in the day. Some are there to teach their kids how to play chess. Some are there you just know. to be chess players, just to have the yeah. identity of being a chess player. Yeah. Well, it was a thought-provoking book and a thought-provoking discussion. So I appreciate your time and getting to talk with you a bit today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This was fun. Yeah, absolutely. You have a good rest of your day. You too. All right. I want to thank Christian for joining me today to cover his book, Look, and the practice of hyper-reflection, the work that he did with his firm, Red Associates, and his broader career journey and some of the things that he's learned along the way about himself and the world. There are certainly some powerful lessons here in how to truly see in our fast-paced and increasingly distracted world. And if you're ready to truly see how you're approaching your own career, you can visit pathwise.io. We can certainly help you with that. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.